Shut up and sit down. me I forgot what I was going to say <laughs> uh, I've been um, I've been plotting um, <clears throat> I've been plotting my July fix again because I'm not really satisfied so I replotted flight and I'm pretty ex- I'm pretty excited about the new turn so we'll see how it goes um, I've also um, been plotting several ideas for the quantum bang um, and no I'm not going to give you any hints um, which is going to be really weird for me. I've never actually participated in an event where I couldn't talk about my work. So it's kind of crazy. I don't know how, um, I don't know how successful I'm going to be at it, but I'm going to try. Um, but, um, Julie is here. Everyone's talking about internal motivations and character building, um, this evening. I'm on the wrong side. And, uh, <laughs> You're on the wrong site. <laughs> yeah, I'm always I'm over on the rough trade going. Where's the chat room? It ain't there <laughs> again. I'm not going to put a chat room on rough trade, <laughs> no matter how much you apparently want it. I just go to rough trade for everything. So it's just <laughs> oh, um, it's hot as hell here. So if uh, if if my air conditioner is really really audible, I'll change rooms. Um, I can't tell. Okay. It's not bothering okay. me. No. Internal motivations. When internal motivations are done well, your character um, resonates with the reader. Actually, I am getting a lot of background noise all of a sudden. Like really? a wave. Yeah. Like a wave. Like a white noise. It could be, could be the AC. So I'll go in the other room. You tell me if you still hear it. Okay. But when your internal motivations are done really well, your character will resonate with your reader no matter what their motivations are. Which is why in some fandoms um the the bad guy will have a significant fan base because his motivations are clear and concise and interesting even if they're terrible. And this is also why the anti-hero um was such a popular trope. And when you build three-dimensional characters, their their wants and desires, their internal motivations should be clear 
to the reader, even if they aren't clear to the other characters around them. So, yeah, like Loki, yes, Loki is an excellent example of this. Um, significant fan base. He stole the show. Uh, he, people, um, really connected with his character, especially those who probably, you know, honestly, who had parents who really didn't approve of them. They weren't the favored child. Um, he, he resonates with them. Someone who has been um, marginalized um, and who acts out in horrific ways in canon. Um, to he, he just wants attention. He just wants love, right? But he also kind of wants to be in charge, and he wants to be, you know, I'm not saying he's not a little wackadoodle because he is, but he's a fun wackadoodle if you can keep him from killing people most of the time. Yeah. Sort of, well, sort of. I think he wants what he feels like he's always been denied, right? So, um, I think it wasn't just not being a favored child, but I think he was, at least my interpretation is he was looked on negatively. Um, he was mm-hmm. denied respect. He was denied admiration in the way that his father or who he thought was his father and Thor were because he wasn't like them. Um, I find Loki a very relatable character. Like you said, if you get to him before he um, murders a bunch of people. Uh, (laughs) So, Styles can be a little bit of an anti-hero, actually. Um, Anyway, um, I, he's not a villain, um, for sure. But he well, wasn't not... he a villain for a while when he had a demon in him? Well, yeah, but that really wasn't him. That was sort of like you know, that was sort of like saying Clint Barton was a villain in um, Avengers. So, okay. I mean, I think if somebody's completely taken over, they're completely possessed, and they don't have any control of what's going on. It's hard to say that person is a villain. Um, but Styles in general is very, um, from what I've read and what little I've seen, he's very, I've read a lot of summaries, so he's very selfish in his motivation. He's concerned about his family, his friends, the people he cares about, his town. Um, and he's much more ruthless than the heroes, of the supposed heroes of the show are. Um, so I, I, I like Styles like my favorite character on Team Wolf, but I don't, he's not, you know, he can be the um, protagonist, but he's not necessarily the hero. I read this interesting thing about how, and actually the more I read it, the more true it was, that even though Thanos was fundamentally the villain in Infinity Wars, and I'll be vague about what I say here because, I don't want to give spoilers for a movie that's still in the theaters. In a fundamental way, he was also the protagonist of um, of Infinity in Infinity Wars. It was his story more than anybody else's. Yeah, I would agree. Which was a little head tilty for me at first because 
we think of the protagonist, we tend to equate protagonist hero. And not every protagonist is a, a hero, doesn't fit the traditional character archetype of the hero. Um, and again, this comes down to point of view, right? Um, you can make your, any villain, really, if, if they've got good motivation, if you really are really clear about defining their internal motivation, and it's relatable, you can make a villain a protagonist if you tell the story from the right point of view. So that was an interesting, just an interesting way of looking at things a little bit differently. And I did change rooms, but you ever sit wrong and like, yes, dress <laughs> winds up all under your butt and it's like choking you. Yes. <laughs> Get out from under my butt. It's like you're doing anything. It pushes your tits down and up. everything is just uncomfortable. And yeah, I know. Yes. You've been there. <laughs> it's mostly the being strangled thing here that's kind of getting on my nerves. Okay. Strangulation over. So if anybody, while we're yapping, if anybody has a particular story of one of ours that you'd like to us to talk about what the internal motivation is, go ahead and give the shout out in the chat room. Um, and while people ponder that. We'll endeavor. We'll proceed to something else. I have so many tabs open that if I lose the chat room, I may never find it again. So I won't be able to go <laughs> home just skipping around. <laughs> I love the ones that quantum bang and shut them. <laughs> um, was it on Friday when we talked about, when I talked about how I layered my plot, um, how I learned to um, weave my plot with internal and external motivators? Um, I think it was Friday. And most often external motivators are events. And these events are shaped by the wants and desires of other people. Wants, desires, and actions of other people. Uh, And that's why it's important to know the internal motivations, the wants and desires of all of your major players, good guy or bad guy or whatever. Because if you don't know what they want, then you can't shape realistic events and actions for them. And these actions and events impact your hero or your protagonist. That's where you can kind of get that two-dimensional villain thing coming in, is when you aren't real clear about what it is the villain wants. Um, Some villains are just evil. You know, and that can be kind of a two-dimensional thing, but it's worth exploring a little bit. Oh, okay. Why are they evil? Yeah, what, you know, what is it? Are they evil just because um, probably the most evil character I've ever written um, 
we have two requests for talking about. Okay. Um, but probably the most evil curse I've ever written was just after money. That was it, more money. And it really, it, that is a very relatable. People understand because they see that in real life. It's people doing really shitty things in the pursuit of just having more. Um, I think that's why Umbridge is so horrific to so many people. It's because we've encountered that person in reality. Yeah. And sometimes the more closely they were, they were resemble people that we encounter reality or real life motivations that we encounter in reality. Um, the more we encounter that, um, the more we see, the less we need to explain because we're right there. We understand. The audience understands the person that so closely resembles the evil we see in the world. Whereas serial killer motivations can be a little bit harder to, um, we don't get in there and hate a serial killer the way we do Dolores Umbridge, right? Uh, well, depending on the serial killer, I guess, but yeah, it's, it's just not something that outside of TV we get involved with on a day-to-day basis. It's not something that we are going to understand at a visceral level. We might get it at an intellectual level. We don't understand it at a visceral level. So the best villains are the ones that almost have to be explained because we get it. You know, it just knocks your guts up and you know that villain. But the very, very, very best villains are doing the wrong things for the right reasons. It's the ones where you can relate to what they're doing, why they're doing it. Um, even if you don't like it. Yeah, even if you don't like what they're Maybe about Maybe especially it. if you don't like it. Yeah. Well, I don't like that you kill 400 million people, but I agree with the reason why you did it. I agree that your motivation... I agree with what you did. I agree with what you felt. I just don't think this is the way to solve it. And those, I think, are just really exceptional villains. So the first um, story that popped up in the chat room was Imperfect, which is your Gibbs character study, right? No, that's the Tony um, Derek Morgan. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, That's fine. Um, I think about one more title is that sometimes unless it's an epic, they don't the names just kind of like Merge. don't necessarily stick. Um, so I don't know if if, if uh, whoever asked for that, do not ask for that. Um, if they want to know about Tony or Derek in that story, you want to know what Grandma Agnes's motivation. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie wants to know Grandma Agnes's motivation. Um, well, Grandma Agnes is just. Um, She's a little old lady. I think she's a little bit lonely. That was the way I interpreted her. She's a little bit lonely, but she's sassy. Um, her grandkids are far away. Um, she lives, um, and she's in this event, in this event where a young man, um, the same age as one of her grandkids, does something stupid. And um, when the situation de-escalates, she gives him, well, she slaps him in the butt with her cane and then gives him a stern talking to. Um, and then it, 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 in the, it, behind the scenes, she stays in touch with that kid. 
um, and helps him with his diversion program and all that stuff. But she's just a sassy old lady, and she sees something in Tony. That's when Tony's trying to find himself again. He's trying to recover from um, – like, Gibbs ghosted Tony in that story. And Tony has this potential sentinel on the horizon, but he needs to get his own center back before he feels like he can get in a relationship. And no matter how well he's doing outwardly, he's a little bit lost. And Grandma Agnes, um, who's Grandma Agnes? Agnes is this, uh, if you haven't read Imperfect, sorry, I'll back up a little. If you haven't read Imperfect, there's a scene in Chapter 6 where um, Derek finds out over the phone that Tony was involved in a convenience store robbery. And it's kind of a comedy of errors kind of thing where Tony used her, okay, she knows she is, but he kind of, Tony kind of uses his, his, his guide gifts to calm the situation down. And there was a little old lady there, Tony, a teenage girl, and um, the teenage, the guy who was doing the robbery of the night. And uh, the whole thing wound up on YouTube because the teenage girl was filming the whole thing. Um, anyway, so Agnes sees something in Tony that just, she just kind of wants to take him home and take care of him. So she does. Um, and Tony has, like, no resistance to little old ladies bossing him around. Um, so she takes him home and feeds him soup and just decides that he's going to be her honorary grandson from that forth because she just really connects with him. And then through Tony, um, there are a lot of people who come into her life, uh, Derek, Penelope, uh, Tim McGee, Jimmy Palmer, all these people become uh, players in her life. And the connection with Grandma Agnes is kind of what keeps the small remnants of what Tony had at NCIS and his new life at um, the BAU kind of connected um, and keeps him from losing that what, what was good of his past keeps him from losing it. So she's kind of a foil to keep him um, grounded and um, yeah. So and then and then at the end of the story, um, just I wanted to close the loop on her because she really was, from a character perspective for Tony, even though mostly happened off screen, she was a really um, important part of of that moment for him with the unconditional acceptance and the care that she gave to him in kind of a maternal way, something he rarely ever experienced in his life. And um, I wanted to close a loop on her at the end of, of the epilogue, which is where, you know, you see all the different people interacting with Agnes and that she started a YouTube channel kind of doing an agony ant where she gives sassy advice to people who submit her questions on Facebook. And she has a big Facebook following, you know. So that was um, – I think that I felt like Tony's motivations were internal motivations were pretty clear um, in the story. I don't know if Derek's were as clear. Um, they may have been. Derek's were more straightforward, I think. Tony's were a little bit more convoluted because he was the one who was hurt by the whole situation. Well, sometimes we don't even know our own. We don't actually know what we want until we get it. 
And for Derek, Derek and Tony have been friends for a long time. And um, they had never done anything. I mean, it wasn't like they weren't, you know, best buds because they're both very busy. But Derek had, he was attracted to Tony. Tony was attracted to Derek. Derek was already an online sentinel. So the attraction wasn't a loss on Derek, but he wasn't going to jeopardize um, a good a, a relation a, a good friendship, something you could hang out with, play basketball with, wind down with, you know, something that was separate from work, something that was, you know, a, a reprieve from the darkness he dealt with in his job. He wasn't going to sacrifice that, um, potentially, um, for a short fling, uh, and so. And it would only have the potential to be a fling because Derek's a sentinel and he's not going to get into a long-term relationship with somebody who's not a guy. Um, but I do see Derek as being fairly emotionally immature. You know, he's not, like, emotionally stunted. And he doesn't, he doesn't you know, I kind of, that's why I kind of wanted to contrast the kind of guide the, the, the sentinels that Tony met in the story was the one who really wanted the perfect guide to fit her life, uh, both in work and professional, both in work and personally, professionally and personally, that she would be, that her guide would be perfect in every way. And she had passed over a guide she was very connected with personally because um, it, he wasn't a good fit for her work. And Tony thought that was kind of dumb. You know, I want to contrast that Derek didn't have those expectations of a guide. He just wanted, you know, he was at the point in his life where he had started to think that he might want a life partner. And he wanted that to be his guide. And so his motivation, I thought, was pretty straightforward. But he was kind of like not in a rush for it until he walked in the door and realized the guide was Tony. And then it was what he wanted. Somebody he was already um, attracted to, somebody he already got along with, somebody he already had a good synergy with, was suddenly a guide and a highly compatible guide. And, like, all of a sudden he's like, that's what I want. Not so that he could have the perfect person to help him use his senses, but so that he could have a relationship. And that's what Tony needed was someone who saw him it was contrasting. It was it was sort of juxtaposition of Gibbs ghosting Tony for not being the right person, not being Shannon, and Derek saying it doesn't matter that we're not a perfect match. It just matters that we click, that we fit. He wanted a person. He wanted somebody in his personal life, and Gibbs only wanted somebody in his professional life. So it was kind of I was kind of deliberately contrasting the two that Tony wasn't enough for Gibbs personally, but that's all Derek cared about was his personal life, was what they were to each other, and that it worked out professionally was just a bonus. Hey, you got to read this again. Although I, last time I read it, I got really mad at Gibbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I felt like the way Gibbs behaved was I tried to really think through how he was going to behave because he did behave abominably. I felt like that Gibbs, when he, you get into his personal life, when you poke at his personal life, when you poke at Shannon, that is the way he behaved. Um, 
And one of the things Tony says to Gibbs, because Tony has a pretty good understanding of Gibbs, even though he's hurt, is he tells Gibbs at some point, I'm going to get the quote wrong, folks, because I don't have this in front of me, is if you had just told me that you couldn't get over her and you couldn't accept somebody else, I would have accepted that. But you didn't. You just cut me off. You shut me out of your life. You pretended like I never existed. After spending eight years backing you up, you ghosted me. And I feel like I feel like Gibbs would be kind of the reactionary person like that. And Gibbs, Gibbs' internal motivation leads to his actions, which were very reactionary. And those become external events for Tony. And so it all plays together. Um because it wasn't that his sentinel didn't want him. I mean, I'm sure that was that was an issue for Tony, but it wasn't that his sentinel didn't want him. It was that this person that he had thought was a friend, this person he had put time and effort into and care into protecting, into backing up, into being there for them whenever they needed it, had just written Tony out of his life without a conversation without a word. And Gibbs did it because he knew he didn't want it. And he knew if he saw Tony, his resolve would waver, which is why he cut him off. Um, so it was, um, I Super tried dick to do a move. lot of like, yeah, it was a very big, it was a very dick move. And that's one of the things Tony confronts Gibbs about is that Gibbs, bludgeons people in his life with Gibbs' trauma. He uses his trauma as a weapon. Um, and that Tony couldn't um, come second, not to Shannon, but to Gibbs' own grief. He's like, it's not even that I'm going to come behind her. It would be that I'd be coming behind your grief. And that I can't deal with that. And that was, because Gibbs did ultimately change his mind in the story. As soon as he had to spend a few days without Tony after his impulsive decision to just cut him out of his life, he realized he couldn't do it, and he went to try to change his mind. But by then, Tony was already really clear on what Gibbs' motivations were because Tony has always understood Gibbs. So he said, I, it's, not that, it's not that I don't understand. It's not that, you know, I... And, you know, and Tony's, I think Tony is the kind of guy who could feel like it was okay for him to come second behind her. It's not really necessarily okay, but I think he's somebody who could be at peace with that. Um, but he just said, I can't, I can't come in second behind your own grief, third behind your grief. There's Shannon, there's your grief, and then there's me. And he said, I can't do it. So I kind of worked a little bit um, with really kind of a little, there was some deliberate choices about how the internal events of one person would play into the external events that affected the next person. So it gives, it gives especially with creating external events for Tony. Um, and I tried to draw some, some parallels in the story, kind of subtly, maybe not so subtly, I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, the motivations in that story were were there were a lot of people's motive because I thought I needed to juggle because Gibbs was a big foil for Tony. Um, he was a big external motivator. Uh, 
if I needed to juggle Derek, Tony, and um, kids equally in terms of making sure that their motivations were clear. And I, I do think kids is a dick, and I think it really mad at him. Um, but I also hope that what came out of it was that it was obvious just how damaged he was. And also that he never allowed himself to heal. Yeah, he made that choice. He made the choice to never allow himself to heal. And ultimately, he wasn't a sentinel anymore. I mean, he went dormant. I think in the story I say it was five weeks after he turned, he, he ghosted Tony that he went dormant. I mean, that was the final nail in the coffin. He would have been dormant eventually anyway. Um I had the speculation in there that Tony was, in a way, because Tony actually, I I did a little bit of world building I've not done before in that story, which was that um, there's two genes that determine, one gene is like an activator gene, sort of like the ATA gene, um, and the other gene is determines, you know, how what, what strengths your sentinel guide abilities are, and that... Um, Tony didn't really have much of an activator gene. But fundamentally, he was a very strong, latent guide. It's just there was no chance he was ever going to come online if he hadn't been drugged with some weird medication cocktail. So um, the, the theory was that the reason Gibbs hadn't been dormant already, um, because he had refused any kind of support after Shannon's death, um, was because he had been using Tony's crutch. And without Tony there, he just slid in like a steep slide into dormancy, which would be a difficult thing for Tony. It's a good thing, you know, that their relationship didn't persist in any kind of friendship way because it would have been a difficult thing for Tony to be around Gibbs going dormant and feel like inappropriate. Not, 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 it's not reasonable guilt, but inappropriate guilt every time he had contact with Gibbs. And that is the way he would feel, so. But no, I, I always I, I think that actually Gibbs's um, refusal to um, process his own grief over the loss of his wife and child um, is fundamentally his his biggest flaw in canon. Mm-hmm. It bankrupts his morals. We see it time and time again. Yeah. And when you poke him and his wife or child in the show, he ceases to be a rational human being. And that's the whole premise of Requiem, right? And he gets basically killed. His daughter's friend shows up with a problem and gives, instead of getting, you know, reasonable, you know, people who are, have a jurisdiction to handle it, he goes off the grid and deals with it himself. And he backs a car into the Potomac with this with Maddie and the and he basically killed them both because he's irrational about he's never processed the death of his wife or daughter. For me, there are lots of moments in NCIS where you're like, "Holy shit, Tony, go, go, run!" And that was one of them for me. 
Go before this man gets you killed. Yeah. There were others, but that was like, go. You need to, you need to go because he's going to get you killed. So Giz is one of those characters I find interesting. It's because his past is so layered and nuanced. And honestly, because he reacts sometimes in really unpredictable ways, that it's easy to twist him and have him feel in character. You could twist him in a positive way or twist him in a negative way and have him still feel like Gibbs. Because we saw the best and the worst of him in the show. Often, sometimes in the same episode. Yeah, sometimes in the same episode. So I think it's really easy to see, again, that, um, I mean, I had I did have, like, one person tell me that they didn't think it was realistic that they didn't use this term, but it's the term I use, that they didn't think it was realistic that Gibbs would have ghosted Tony the way he did. But Gibbs did that to Tony all the time in canon. Um I watched just enough of the last season of NCIS to Tony's last season of NCIS. Um, Gibbs was treating him terribly. I mean, deliberately treating him badly. So um, Gibbs and Gibbs treated Tony terribly after the whole shit show with Jean. So um, I mean. um, so it was um, Gibbs, Gibbs is one of those characters who's very malleable to both he's never quite the hero but you can definitely make him kind of an anti-hero or you can make him um, he's not quite the villain but he can definitely be the antagonist Well, Viva, I think Viva never spouted off about Shannon and Kelly because Viva was trying to slip into the surrogate daughter role and reminding him that she wasn't actually his daughter wasn't going to help her. I mean, she knew how to play that. It would have been not to her um, benefit. Yeah. Because you just didn't poke, especially poke Gibbs about Kelly. Um, now he he filled his life with Kelly substitutes, but you still didn't want to poke him about his actual daughter. Okay, so what was the next one that somebody had wanted? If I didn't answer anything about the internal motivation, I didn't really get into Tony's internal motivation because I felt like that I hope he, it was mostly from his point of view or about him. Um, that he was going, kind of going through a shock and a grieving period, and then he kind of had to find his own footing again um, to go on to assertively go into the next part of his life as opposed to just reactionary. I didn't want that. I didn't want him to be damaged going into 
like actively grieving going into another relationship. So that's why there was that period where they were apart and Tony was kind of coming back into his own. I don't remember what the next one. Somebody had some question um, about was, mind, I remember. It was Elizabeth Weir in Hold My Coffee. Oh, that's right. And then Kevin Jordan. Okay. Elizabeth, um, for me, Elizabeth Weir is a very polarizing character. Um, and depending on... I, I'm really deeply unfond of the performance of Tori Higginson, Higgins whatever, in um, Stargate Atlantis. I loved Jessica's performance. Even if she was a little cold. But I, I didn't like Tori. It was all mom. She was momming them. And it was just... I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Um, for me, in, in Hold My Coffee, Elizabeth is... Um, when I was structuring the series and I was thinking about Meredith and creating a foil for her, that, that I knew that it would have to be Elizabeth. Um, it, because Rodney and Elizabeth um, didn't always see eye to eye. And I wondered how Elizabeth would respond to an intelligent and powerful woman who also happens to be more attractive than her. Um, I picked that actress on purpose to uh, because well for a couple of reasons. One, because I really like the actress. Two, I wanted to create. Um, I wanted to highlight how um, her appearance can get in her way. And um, finally, um, because if McKay had been a woman, they would have cast the most attractive woman they could have found to fill the role. For pure eye candy purposes, because they always did. The the leads are always really attractive. So I, you know, anyways, but I do like the actress a lot. But I did pick her because I was. Um, it's it's interesting. Um, there's a whole there's another layer on a woman's career when she has to combat her own appearance as well, for good or bad. Um, but Elizabeth in, in Hold My Coffee, she's, she doesn't know quite what she wants. Power. She's power hungry. Um, she's also, uh, very convinced that, uh, everything should go her way and that disagreeing with her is the same thing as disrespecting her. The same way the canon version of Elizabeth Weir got into the SGC. Let's be honest. She wasn't exactly the best choice to send to another galaxy. No. She was reactionary. She was short-tempered. She was unprofessional. You could say it's bad writing. It is. 
is but, bad um, writing. That's what, and that's fan fiction. That's what fan fiction is all about. Fixing it. Fixing it all. Fixing it. Um, but, so, I ramped up a few of her quirks from canon to create a better foil for Meredith. Because if, if Meredith could run all over Elizabeth at every single opportunity, you'd be bored. And keeping Elizabeth kind of unpredictable and demanding is fun. Because you never know what she's going to do next. And neither does Meredith. <laughs> That's true. But she is she is obsessed with Ascension. She's obsessed with Ascension in canon. She was so obsessed with Ascension that when the Replicators captured her, in canon, she infected their entire race with the desire to ascend. How intense it must have been in in her that, you know, when they absorbed her, ever how they creepily did that, very Borgish, um, <laughs> but her desire for ascension was so great that she overwhelmed their programming. So she was already a Fruit Loop. I just ramped it up a little bit. So there's some jealousy over Meredith's um, intelligence. But the big thing, and it's going to come out in the um, next set of episodes. Um, Elizabeth Weir wants a baby with the ancient gene and Meredith's in her way. Oh, because Meredith stopped the... uh... Huh. Now, they're going to get the gene on the city, but it's not going to work for Elizabeth. And so the only way she can get a baby with a really, really strong gene is to take a ride on John Shepard, which is why she left her husband-to-be at home. Yeah, it would be bad touching. There won't be any bad touching. Um, cause I, you, you know, I don't play that, but that's, um, that's her motivation. She, she wants, she wants to be as close to being an ancient as she possibly can. Ascension, et cetera. Um, what did she think? I, I, you know, the, the obsession with, I never understood the obsession with Ascension for the, the ancients in the, in canon. Um, right. I mean, it's like they give up their whole, they give up, they give up their whole life pursuing not dying which is kind of tragic and nuts but yeah that's Elizabeth's motivation she she wants to ascend she wants to be as close to ancient as possible and um, she also wants a baby she wants an ancient baby That's a horrible concept. I was thinking about you know various ways to 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 put her against Meredith, and I didn't want it to be about sex. I didn't want it to be about you know them fighting over a man, because Elizabeth really isn't interested in John for anything beyond his genetics. She doesn't want him. 
She doesn't want him to love her. She just wants his sperm. Gross. Like, truly gross. <laughs> Because the fact of the matter is, is that Elizabeth Weir sees men um, as disposable tools. She gets what she wants from them, and then she leaves them. And I've known women like that. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it's... um, (laughs) It was really easy to write her that way. Um, but um, I didn't want it to be some sex sex love triangle or, you know, anything like that. I didn't want it to be that. I, I wanted to get away from that cliche. Um, you'll find out what her previous fiancé um, fiance was good for. Um, I wanted to um, – I just – I wanted to uh, to create – I wanted something different, you know, Something very human. And ugly. Oh, Carson could have definitely been a viable candidate for giving her a baby if John hadn't come along. But she didn't ever risk getting pregnant on Earth because then they wouldn't have let her go to Atlantis. Right. And John's got such a much prettier gene. Yes, he does. In more ways than one. But I'm on the fence about um, I I have a couple of different plot ideas for how that's going to come out considering blackmail her trying to blackmail John and the giving up his sperm yeah well, she's, she's not. She's person. not normal. She's crazy. No, I mean, she's you know, on top of it all. She, I mean, she is a nut job, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, that's her motivation. She's, um, she's just a Fruit Loop. She's a, she has a personality disorder. Um, I would not say she's a sociopath, but I would label her as borderline. No, no. That was Iterum. But yeah, so Elizabeth, you know, I was just trying to create a foil for, for Meredith that would be um, different and interesting and a, a little nutso. So, um, yeah. yeah. And also, well, you, in, the, in, in that story, I mean, I can't, I'm not psychic about your motivations is how I read mm-hmm. it is that if the foil for Meredith in the story had been male, if Elizabeth Weir was male, that would have got, could have gone a very abusive, hostile direction very quickly. Um, yes. And really changed the tone of the story. So it really needed to be another woman. And, the only and she had to have a give... uniquely female um, set of motivations. Uh, just, you know... yeah. 
don't know. Anyway, that's that's what I went with, and um, you know, honestly, it makes her probably the most human weir I've ever written. And she's deeply flawed, and her motivations are very base. And horrifying. Kind of like Umbridge. Who's just an old racist. Yeah, she's all kinds of horrible. Um, I did try to capture the other ones for Asa. There's one I don't know that we can talk to, because neither one of us have really seen the movie. And people asked if we could talk to the motivations between behind team Caps behavior in Civil War. And neither of us has seen that movie. Um, I've read a synopsis of what happened, but there's only so much you can get from reading a synopsis. You need to see the expressions on the characters' faces, um, exactly what happened, because there's also stuff that did, I know didn't appear in the movie that is on the wiki. And um, I don't know, it's a very difficult thing to to talk to motivation with something you um, have a been avoiding for the most for the most part, and also haven't seen. It's a little bit easier, like with Teen Wolf. It, like I haven't really seen more than a few episodes of that, and I would actually say most of them are not complete episodes. It's pieces of episodes I need to, to write something, um, but I have read like summaries for like entire seasons of the show and coupled with a few bits of episodes and honestly hours of really good fan vids because the team will fan them as a lot of really good fan vids. Um, I feel like I have more of a feel for what's going on. When I read the summary of Civil War, I didn't, I didn't understand it. It was like, is this bizarre world? Am I being punked? Um, I didn't understand how it was even part of the same universe. So we all got punked. Yeah, I felt like I did, but I didn't understand Civil War in the comics either. But whatever. Um, but I felt like it's difficult to talk to because I was so horrified by what I read when I read summary of the movie. Um, that I, it. I don't know. It's difficult to talk to without seeing it. That's one where I feel like I'm. It's so it's so egregious what I read in the summary that I feel like the only way for me to know, have any kind of you know reasonable judgment about what was going on, would be to actually see the movie. Because I I would be hoping for some um, glimmer of insight in character motivation that isn't apparent to explain in some fashion the crazy behavior that I read about in the summary. Um, so, yeah, so that's really hard to talk to since we haven't seen it. And what I've read makes me want to go, no, there's no explanation for any of that shit. Um, the only explanation, the thing, um, the only part I feel even remotely capable of talking to and something Kira and I talked about the other night, actually, um, is about Steve Rogers specifically, not about any of the others. 
about Steve and his connection to Bucky and about how he came out of the ice um, losing more than 60 years of his life and they didn't give him time to acclimate. They didn't teach him about the world he lived in. They just stuck him, sent him, started, you know, sending him on missions and um so he has no tether. His only tether to his past life is a woman with Alzheimer's who doesn't remember him half the time. And S.H.I.E.L.D. did him an incredible disservice in the way they handled him. They just stuck him back doing missions, being an Avenger, and didn't really give him time to acclimate. They didn't give him therapy. They didn't make him take classes on modern government and political science and world government. And then a piece of his past comes back. The friend, his friend since childhood is out there, and his friend from childhood, this the most important person in his life in Captain America, um, the first Avenger, um, is there. And isn't just there, but is incredibly wounded, incredibly damaged at the hands of the people that Steve had been fighting, that Steve thought he defeated. I mean, think about that. Steve made that sacrifice that he did with the test act. He made the sacrifice in that plane. He put himself into the ice thinking that he had defeated Hydra. And he gets this tiny piece of his life back and finds out that the thing that he had been thought, the one thing he thought he had done had been torturing his best friend the entire time he was frozen. I would guess that it unhinged him. And that's the only thing that I can surmise. And that that became his sole focus, an obsessional focus that Bucky Barnes became an obsessional and rational focus for Steve Rogers. And you may not like Steve's actions, but Steve's actions are the most understandable of everybody on his team, in my opinion, because Steve Rogers is damaged. And he's his he was so wrapped up in... Bucky and in saving Bucky and his whole motivation was to keep Bucky safe. It wasn't about the Accords. From anything I can tell, I do not buy for a second that Steve's true motivations had anything to do with the Accords because all Steve had to do if he hated the Accords was not be a superhero anymore. So It also needs to be said that he dropped Bucky or he didn't catch Bucky. He, so he blamed himself for Bucky falling from that train to begin with. So Steve has such a mess of trauma in him around Bucky. And then there's Bucky, so broken. And he thinks the world is out to get Bucky, and Bucky is being framed for a crime he didn't commit. The one crime Bucky did, Bucky Bucky committed a lot of crimes as the Winter Soldier, but Bucky is the world builds out for Bucky's blood over something Bucky didn't do. And all Steve can see is he has to protect this person that he feels like he failed so 
miserably. So talking to Steve's motivation and what was going on with Steve and even what was going on with Bucky isn't particularly difficult for me to understand. I do not understand anybody else's motivation, except Wanda's. I don't understand Sam Wilson's. I don't understand Natasha's. I don't understand Clint's. They make no sense to me from what I've read. Because these are all Sam, Clint, Natasha, all experienced people, all experienced agents, all understand the world as it is, all capable of seeing, especially Sam, what is going on with Steve, and all they did was enable him and feed into what amounted to a delusion. So um, Wanda's motivations I have no problem with. I think she's evil. I think Wanda is. I don't care how they presented her. Personally, I think Wanda whammied the whole lot of them. Yeah. I mean, that, I can understand why that's common fanon, that Wanda is messing with the whole team. I can understand why that's common fanon, because it actually makes a lot of sense. Because their behavior, Clint, Natasha, Sam's behavior in Civil War, from what I've read, makes, it makes no sense. So when you talk about internal motivations of a character, it's easy to just, I don't condone anything that Steve Rogers did in that movie. It's not about condoning. But when it comes to internal motivation, it's about under, can you understand it? You know, and his, his internal motivation is understandable. Where the movie falls down is nobody else's is. I mean, not literally nobody else's. I understand Ross's motivation is very shallow and very transparent, and it has been. Um, From the very beginning. the Hulk. Right. So, you know, not every character is difficult to understand. But, I mean, talk about the main characters. Steve's motivation is actually pretty easy to pick apart if you look at it from the perspective of he's a man at a time with a massive guilt complex. Um, and the person that he is the most attached to, and Steve has a history of breaking the rules when he isn't able to do what he thinks he should be able to do. Steve thought he should be able to join the army and go serve with Bucky, and he broke the rules over and over and over and over again in in that aim. And you're, he's back in that situation. You have a parallel to that situation where he's being told that he is not allowed to do something based upon these UN Accords, and Bucky's on the line. And Steve is fucked up in the head. And it's his history is to fight it. It's to even do and to justify his illegal acts. So Steve is pretty easy to understand if you kind of think about what's going on with him. Even if you haven't seen the movie, if you've seen Captain America, the first Avenger, if you've seen Captain America, Winter Soldier, you do not need all you you really don't need to see Civil War to understand Steve. And you really don't need to see Civil War to understand Bucky. Um, my, if I were to watch it, I would be hoping to gain some insight into Clint, Natasha, and Sam, other than brainwashing. Because their motivations I don't understand. But I didn't understand Natasha's motivations in The Winter Soldier either, unless she thinks the only motivation I can ascribe to her behavior in Winter Soldier is that... She thinks Steve is the prize pony. He's the winning horse. And she's putting her money on the horse she thinks is going to win in some fashion. And that even if she knows it's a bad idea, 
she's going to back Steve. She's banking on Team Steve from way back then. So for what reason? Not real clear. It could just be the spy mentality. Always looking for a way out, you know. Maybe she wants, I mean, Natasha's motivation is a little bit murky because, and Winter Soldier, because what, was she hoping to burn her colleagues? <laughs> Did she not like them or something? Was it always her goal to burn S.H.I.E.L.D. to the ground? Because she succeeded, <laughs> if it was. Yeah. But I don't know if that, I don't know if that little rant helped anybody who was wanting to talk, asked about her, asked about the internal motivation. <laughs> um of the that because you really do now you really do have to separate the comics from the movie because there's so much in the comics that just the movies that just completely contradict anything you've ever heard in the comics. So um, we can try to fill in the gaps a little bit with stuff we know from the comics, but in general, I think it that kind of just starts to fall apart. So. Um, So, anyway, that's like, I can understand why people be, have a very very strong emotional reaction to Civil War, whichever side you're on. Um, I have no problem understanding Tony Stark's actions at all. So, the two people who are the clearest to me are Tony and Steve and Bucky, not two people, but I guess Bucky, Bucky's a third, but... Bucky is honestly like a PT, a person with, with an extreme case of PTSD who's being triggered constantly, um, floating from situation to situation and trying to survive. So Bucky is very reactionary. I don't think there's anything planned or deliberate about what Bucky's doing in that movie. Um, but the rest of it, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not sure that seeing the movie would clear it up either. I think that internal motivation is making you mad. the franchise. Yeah, I think that the internal motivation is something that franchise is incredibly weak on. Otherwise, everything <laughs> Jarvis. The Hulk would have, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, the Hulk would have flattened all of Team Cap, you know, because Wanda and Nat, N- N- Natasha fucked Bruce over in the worst possible way. They both epically betrayed him. Now, well, wanted him. She mind-raped him. But then they left her on the team. So everybody else betrayed him. And then Natasha took his right, his, his freedom of choice away from him. And then they let the two people who did that to him back on the team. And granted, nobody knew where he was. They thought he might have been dead. I mean, ever assuming the Hulk is dead is just a bad idea. But they didn't know where he was. But still... How about the just damn loyalty? Yeah, just because the person, your team, just because your teammate who you cared about and who supported you and saved your life, isn't physically present, doesn't mean you let the person who hurt them take their spot. That doesn't mean that's not how that works. That's why Ziva pissing us all off so bad. So. And Tony just has to tolerate her, huh? I mean, she mind raped the fuck out of him too. And what? He he has to put up with it. He has to be the bigger person and overlook it. It's like Harry Potter and Snape all over again. 
Snape couldn't yeah. be an adult, or Harry had to. The whole series is about them telling S.H.I.E.L.D. in some fashion. S.H.I.E.L.D. telling Tony to suck it up. And Tony just needs to Tony to needs to tell S.H.I.E.L.D. to suck his ass. Yeah. They don't even get his dick. They can just have ass. No, Clint was not okay with Wanda's mind rape because when she tried to do it to him, he shot her in the head with a electric arrow. <laughs> well, he was not okay with her doing it to him. <laughs> Clint, I guess I guess their explanation for Clint being okay with Wanda was suddenly because of Petra's death. But I don't that that's really thin. He was the enemy basically. I mean, yeah, he turned around at the last second, but Whatever. I guess that the motivations, the internal motivations are bizarre in the whole franchise. It's not just the Civil War was the culmination of internal motivations that are confusing. When, when you have external events, yeah, if you have external events, this is, what, this is what people are reacting to, right? You have external events and the internal you have external events or external motivators, and the actions of your characters don't mesh with those events. So that's why you're questioning what's going on, what's going on with them, because uh, you know, as the, the viewer, that this doesn't make sense. But let's go way back to Iron Man 2, okay? Jarvis is Tony's baby kid. He Jarvis is a, per, is a person to Tony. Even if nobody else recognizes it, to Tony, Jarvis is a person. And S.H.I.E.L.D. turned Jarvis off and locked Tony in his house and threatened him. And as much as I like Coulson, Coulson was a charge on that. That was epic bullshit. It made no sense with that as an external event for Tony to react the way he did and want to have anything to do with S.H.I.E.L.D. Ever. And yet, Tony, like the most more brilliant mind on the planet, with the best technology, capable of probably putting, making S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, systems into nothing but, you know, its component parts, kept leaving himself open to S.H.I.E.L.D.'s attacks, to S.H.I.E.L.D. interfering with the systems, to S.H.I.E.L.D. interfering with Jarvis. S.H.I.E.L.D. interfering with Jarvis. That would have happened exactly once. Exactly If it ever happened at all, if Tony was true to character. Right. So that's what I mean about you see this external motivator. And they would have paid for it. Oh, yeah. He'd 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 have destroyed him for that. So you have these external events coming at Tony. It should be prompting a response from him. And that's what you as the audience are expecting, right? You're expecting him to do something that shows what his internal motivation is in response to this behavior. And you basically don't get it. Instead, the next time we see Tony in Avengers Assemble, Bill Coulson overrides Jarvis's security protocols and basically goes after Jarvis again. He doesn't completely shut him off, but 
but he overrides Jarvis to get access to the tower. So it happened again. I'd have punched Phil when he came out of that elevator. Not that it makes more sense. I would have set Lola on fire. Yeah. It makes more sense that Shield would never have had the ability to do that. And yet, they did. And Tony's not stupid. So that it becomes where there's a disconnect in the mind of the reader, the viewer, whichever you're doing, whether you're watching or reading something, where the external events aren't creating motivations that make sense to you as the reader, viewer, whatever. And then we went out and we write fic. Because that's what we do. <laughs> that's that's we what we aim. do. We fix shit. Or hurts our feelings. I think all the writers in the MCU are bitter. And they have every right to be. Well, they needed a lead writer. And apparently they didn't have one. (laughs) Or at least not one who could keep a storyline together. It's very annoying. But it's very good for fan fiction writers because you've got lots of stuff to play with and fix. That's right. And we're doing a whole bang now. So if you're angry about what the crap going on in the MCU is, and people are probably still going to be a little bit pissed off by the time August 1st rolls around, you just trot yourself over to the Quantum Bang and you sign up and write your fix it fix. Fix all the shit for Tony. You should go look at our bang because it looks so pretty. It is. It's beauteous. We've been working hard on it for the last couple of days. Making pages and stuff. It's beautimous. There it is. I want the sci-fi vibe fool you. That's just because quantum, you know, quantum mechanics. You know, it's just, you know, but you can, you know, you can fix any little fandom your heart desires. As long as there's no real people. Right. No real people. Read the rules. I will mention that because the last time we talked about the bang, I was on the fence about RPF. Um, ultimate decision was made because we are... Um, going to try to kind of pay homage to the original tradition of the bang, which was art and stories together. Um, and they kind of formed a, like a, it was the earliest zines were kind of, you know, there was, there was a zine tradition out of that, not a for-profit one, but kind of creating a publication of a bang. And we um, decided to honor that tradition and host all the stories. They can be posted elsewhere too, but host all the stories. And as a result, I, I and Kira have been very clear from the from the jump at Wild Hair that we will not host RPF because of the questionable legality of it, more so even I can't than af- anything else in fandom. I can't afford those kinds of legal fees. I'm just saying, y'all. No.
And if you're thinking that 50K is too much for you, it's not. Every single one of you who is a writer can write 50K in a year. And if you start your story now, you basically have a year, a little bit less. You don't have to wait till August to start. If your story is not RPF, go for it. Yeah, that's already been fixed, that, that KB issue. Um, if you wrote 250 words a day for the next 200 days, you would have 50,000 words. And yes, I did use my calculator. <laughs> so it's doable. It is very doable. Do not let the um, the word count intimidate you. And if you're trying to fix something in the MCU, you need 50K, folks. <laughs> yeah, There's you might some... need 100. <laughs> you know, if you're, you can do a canon interrupt in 10K or 5K. You really can't fix shit in the MCU in that amount of time. So, um, you know, a fix it can be really any, almost anything. If you're, you're just fixing something you don't like in canon, okay? Thorin lives, fix it. Time travel, fix it. Tony gets to break Steve Rogers' nose, fix it. You know, I mean, it all depends on how you interpret what fixing means. So, you know, you have this story or this book or movie or TV show that is driving you up the wall. Um, plot how you would fix it. You know, give yourself some novel length and go... Trot on over to start writing now. You don't have to wait for this. You know, all the rules are out there already. You don't have to wait to sign up to start writing. I haven't. Okay. So the next one on our list um, was Kevin Jordan, I think. Oh, Kevin Jordan. Um. Kevin Jordan is, at the heart of him, selfish. He is an abuser who was raised in an abusive household. He's a narcissist. He firmly believes in his right to um, own people, specifically to own submissives. Um, When I took out, when I made gender, much, much less of an issue in Ties That Bind. I had to consider what kind of issues would rise in its place. Where sexism really isn't a thing, something would take its place. And that's what Kevin Jordan represents. He's an old-school sexist. He thinks submissives should be seen and not heard, basically. (laughs) He doesn't believe they should be educated unless it's to be educated on how to suck his dick. Um, He firmly believes in the right to keep slaves as um, submissives as slaves. And he finds every submissive on earth inferior to himself. So when Rodney told him no, something that Kevin doesn't think he should have the right to do, It made him very aggressive towards McKay. 
And when McKay chose John and let John collar him, the implication was was that McKay thought John was better than Kevin Jordan. And, of course, John is better than Kevin Jordan across the board. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. And that was a severe blow to his ego. And so his desire to punish John for taking someone he wanted was very sincere. He wanted to punish John because Rodney did not submit to him as he felt like was his due. And to be truthful, I have met men, I have met more men like him than I would ever want to talk about. And most women who've spent any time working in a professional setting probably have. They manipulate their way into positions of power so they can subjugate people. And that is exactly what Kevin Jordan did. Every ounce of rank he gained for himself was just so that he could force the submission of other people around him, including Dom's. He gets off on power. All power. And that's the that's the whole of Kevin Jordan. Pretty clear in in his um, in his actions and in his um, in his dialogue and just he thinks that John's inferior and he is outrageously insulted that McKay chose him. Yeah, that's what I got off. I mean, I totally got all that from Jordan. And I picked the actor I did to play him because I hate that actor. And it was so easy to write him when I put that actor. I was like, there you go. That's the bastard right there. I can't stand him. I can't stand James Woods. I don't know what, I don't know what he ever did to me on TV, but he did something. <laughs> I can't even stand to look at him. And when I crafted Kevin Jordan, immediately I wanted to cast um, James Wood to play him, fan casting. It was an immediate decision. Hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I kind of, whenever I see him, especially in a certain age range, I see him and I go, oh, Kevin Jordan. Sorry. <laughs> I never would have cast somebody I actually liked because um, it would have ruined the actor for me. Because he is heinous. Yeah, that and um, that can be rough. Is when you um, cast an actor you like um, in a hated role. Yeah, don't do that to yourself, folks. Don't do it. 
It'll ruin you. You'll regret it deeply. Head cannon is very powerful. So, but yeah, that's that's Kevin. And I, um, crafting a bad guy is always a little um, uncomfortable for me because. It's so easy to see the ugly in people. And it's so easy to assign the ugliness to your characters. And it's so real. We yeah. talked earlier about um, Dolores Umbridge. And that's why. I have not seen Deadpool 2. Do not ruin it for me. Year in the corner. <laughs> we have a special unpleasant corner for spoilers. There is no porn in that corner. And I won't let Az give you any sex. Snackless and pornless in the corner. And who wants that? <laughs> but, but, um... I what was I saying? Oh, Patrick Shepard in Sentinels of Atlantis. Patrick Shepard in Sentinels of Atlantis is um when you when when I saw it, my first thought was he's heartbroken. The Patrick in what might have been is is angry and and Angry at himself, but also angry at John, um, and desperate to fix uh, his relationship with John. But the Patrick in Sentinels of Atlantis is is is, is heartbroken, um, and that's why Andy isn't particularly happy with John, because Andy knows how hurt Patrick is. By John leaving Earth the way he did without without speaking to him. Now Patrick understands John's duty, and he understands why John didn't reach out because they were having so many problems and so many issues. But it also was was wounding. It was deeply wounding. So Patrick is heartbroken in Sentinels of Atlantis, um, and that is something that when John comes back to Earth, he's gonna. Be slapped in the face with because he can't hide it. The emotional wounds yeah. are so deep that Patrick Patrick can't hide it, um, and so um, that's some, that's going to be a stumbling block for John. Not a big one, not an insurmountable one, but Patrick is he's um, Patrick's a guide. That empathy has always been there. He just didn't have access to it. People talk about Sentinels having um, sense memories going decades back that they didn't recognize, but they could pull up, you know, like in in Fanon. I believe the same same thing is true about guides, that even though um, the parts of his brain that make him a guide weren't activated, that that Patrick was still absorbing... um, the emotions and um, empathic impressions to the people around him. And there was a reason why he attracted so many sentinels 
It's because he was putting off a little bit of empathy, too, even though he was um, latent. Uh, And so, even though Patrick has has bonded with a Sentinel, he's bonded with Jack O'Neill and Sentinels of Atlantis, which is honestly one of my favorite pairings. I am totally on board that train. I, 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 I was iffy when I first plotted it and when I put it together, but when it when it came time for that sex scene, I was like, I, I'm yep, <laughs> I'm on board this ship. <laughs> Done deal. Um, but yeah, so so it'll be it'll be difficult. Because Patrick is just, and so every every action that Patrick takes is is designed to get his son back, and that is perfectly clear when he tells O'Neill, "What do you need? I'll give you everything you need. I'll buy things. I'll buy people. I just want my son back." And that quiet desperation in Patrick echoes in Jack. And it did before they ever bonded. Because that irrational desire to... Well, it is irrational to say you'll give up everything. Everything. It's, 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 not, it's not coming from a place of rationality to get your child back. That that John that O'Neill feels the same way, that he would literally give up everything to have Charlie back. I think that's the reason why their pairing works so well in Sentinels of Atlantis is that they have this. Um, They share a common grief. And even though John is, is very much alive, um, Patrick worries that he'll never get his son back. What? Oh, no, I just, that just, yeah. Patrick Patrick, in that, I felt like Patrick's pain just kind of like dripped all over the page. You know, I always really felt for Patrick in that story. He doesn't have enough left in him to even be angry. That's the kind of grief he carries. And a lot of it is self-blame because he has, he has to recognize that he put so much pressure on John that John, that the sentinel in John fled. And it was completely instinctual. And then to have John tell him in that recording that that he still looks for his heartbeat every night. I made myself cry when I wrote that. I was like, why did I write that? Why did you write that? That's terrible. Why did you write that? <laughs> because that's what it is. Part of it. Because Patrick realized in that moment that that he pushed John away and that John would have never gone far. If he hadn't pushed so hard. So. But yeah. I made myself cry when I wrote that. 
And it is often I bring myself to tears, it, but it happens. And when it does happen, I always keep it because I'm thinking that's some good shit. <laughs> and I make myself cry. It's going to stay in because that means it's awesome because I don't often make myself cry. But I can I can almost cry just thinking about it. So Sebastian and what might have been. Okay, okay. Then but then you have to pick on Jilly. Okay, okay. Sebastian and what might have been. Sebastian and what might have been. Um, there are basically um, his overreaching motivation um, is that he wants to be safe. He wanted to be safe, but what you discovered in. Um, the first part of Ring of Fire is that Sebastian had ascended when his mother died and he returned to Earth because he wanted to meet his father. And that is intrinsically um, Sebastian's motivations. Um, he desperately wanted to be a part of his father's life. And he wants to be safe. So when anything threatens that safety, it's a little more than he can tolerate. And that's building because in Ring of Fire, um, something big threatens his safety. And so um, what I have plotted, I, I don't, nobody's going to die, but um, that that reactionary Um, behavior in Sebastian comes to a head in, um, in, in in Ring of Fire. So when I get to the point where I can actually write it, um, I think you'll all be really happy with it. Oh, I'm sure we will be. Oh, you thought a little bit about what's going on with Sebastian in Ring of Fire, and it it's it's heartbreaking. But if but because you're a happily ever after author, and I have great confidence in that. Um, I look forward to it, and I don't dread it. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that several parts during the plotting stage of that, I made myself cry. So, <laughs> and once I made John cry, but um, so yeah. But I don't believe in killing my favorite characters, and um. I believe in happy endings. Tony in Is Found. Well, above that, somebody wants to know about Vicious's motivation. Oh, Vicious. I love Vicious. Vicious and Vicious. Um, vicious motivation. Vicious is kind of what Tony inferred that she was, even though he's kind of joking. She kind of is a queen. Um, and... Um, the more hmm, the, the different I have kind of like different gifts the way I kind of that that universe is there's different gifts with different um, different spirit animals or sort of represent bringing that's sort of the way they kind of parsed in bringing because they didn't um, they're bringing spirit guides and spirit gifts and and the the psionic gifts back to man. They decided that they weren't going to 
I'm kind of doing like a, a, a high level, high level sapiens with the spirit world. That these are distinct, separate personalities. That they're highly evolved personalities. They just don't speak to them. They could speak on the spirit plane if they chose to, but they don't. Um, wow, that was one. That's an obscure one. Um, the um, and so the 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 gifts that are um, more about wielding psionic energy, um, specifically to good for good or for ill, are the gifts that would come with the female spirit guides, which is why they have been not returning. And Vicious is because Vicious is the chief banana. She's going to go first and make sure that um, the world is ready for these gifts to come back. Um, that they're mature enough and reasonable enough and evolved enough or whatever. They're, it's kind of, it's not like, it's not like they're being tested, but it's also kind of a test. Like, is it, is it time? And so Vicious is, um, her motivation, she's, but she's also, they put themselves in these very young bodies to kind of mature and grow in the real world um, and it, so they can fully experience what's going on. And... Vicious has a twofold motivation. Because um, I mentioned the um, spirit guide that had been harmed, the first guide that had been harmed, the serval kitten that had been killed. I mentioned that in Vicious. Um, so Vicious actually has two motivations. So one, she's evaluating if they're ready to start sending more female spirit animals back, which would have more wielding of psionic energy as opposed to um, sensory gifts and um, the other is she's looking for um, who is going to get that spirit back that was killed um, and and guide it into what it was supposed to be and um, so that's her motivation so she's, so she's kind of like got a young physical brain but sort of a big purpose, and um, she's a lot running on instinct at first, but then as she grows, she runs a little less on instinct. So when she's um, seeing things that are not right, she's very, uh, very, very emotive with her feelings, uh, and she's got a lot of power. So... Um, that's what's going on with Vicious. So um, so there is the third story in that series is called Sweetie, um, because that's what Tony names the serval kitten, uh, which Vicious decides that the only appropriate foster for this wounded spirit guide is Tony. So Tony has sort of two spirit guides for a while, um, and he names the serval Sweetie. So the first story is Vicious. The story I'm working on now is called Heathen. Um, and then the third story is Sweetie. So that's Vicious. That's what Vicious is going on with Vicious. Tony is, so let me ask that Tony and is found. Um, internal motivations. Um, Tony, Tony and, and, and is found is 
Okay, so external events leave him reeling a lot. Like, he's very emotionally reactive in his sound, and he is... Um, he's presented with this thing that is almost unbelievable, but it's like, it's like the promise of something that he wants more than anything, which is a family, which is to be part of something that accepts him unconditionally. And he doesn't know how to accept it. And so he wants this thing desperately, but he doesn't know how to take it. And he, and it's not just taking it, is he doesn't know how to let go of what he has. Um, Rodney kind of summed up Tony's internal motivation at the end of it sound. I need to go find the exact line because sometimes I just don't want to be inaccurate. Because <laughs> Rodney, Rodney gets Tony in a way that nobody else does um, in it sound. Even even Tony's brothers, his father, none of them get Tony or Alex by then. Nobody gets Alex the way that um, Rodney does. And Rodney sees right through um, all the way at the end of the last part. Um, I'm in the right section. <laughs> She's one of those too. I do. I hold her my breath all the time when I'm doing something. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> um, Rodney says, from the point of view to stop thinking about the box you've been in and what it's done for you, when you eliminate the box, is what you get from your job worth it? Is it all that you want? And he, oh, sorry, he says, I get it. And Alex says, what do you get? He says, I get your self-worth coming from your work. It's easy to seek validation from something you do well when you don't get it anywhere else. And Rodney sees right through to the heart of Alex, which is that Tony has gotten um, his personal validation from work for years, and he doesn't know how to let go of that. But he desperately, desperately wants the family that he's that is his. That he's not sure he's earned. He feels like he doesn't deserve it, even though it's just his. And he doesn't, but he doesn't know how to let go with what he's had. And that's why Rodney tells him, you know, if you eliminate the box you've been in and what it's done for you, you know, is what you're getting from the job worth it? And Tony, you know, Alex ultimately decides, of course, as you, as we know, that it isn't. And so that's when he moves on. Um, Tony's, Tony's internal motivations are, for the most of the story, he's reacting. Um, he's just trying to um, get from one moment to the next in a situation, in a world, in an environment. I mean, it, it was like you would have to, there's not much he doesn't understand about the world, he thought, until you threw him three brothers and a father who have been mourning for him grieving for him, longing for his presence for 30-odd years. And he doesn't know what to do with that. Who would? How do you... <laughs> who would? I mean, how do you go from not knowing you're adopted to finding out that you've been kidnapped and that your birth family never stopped looking for you? 
or never stopped wanting you when you were raised by somebody who didn't want you at all. You were actually yeah. kidnapped by somebody who didn't want you. That you were a means to an end for the person who took you. That's why he is, if his internal motivation ever seems unclear in that story, it's because he doesn't even know what's going on. He, Tony's internal motivation at that point is to get through from one moment to the next and, and not lose anything. I mean, if you want to, to, to pinpoint an internal motivation, it is to not lose anything. He's got what he's had, which is pretty minimal, and somebody is like there's this thing that he, he doesn't know that he actually fits in, but he wants it desperately, and he just doesn't know what to let go of. You know, I mean, he's kind of just like holding on with his you know, white-knuckled grip, holding on by the tips of his fingers, going, I don't know what to do. So he's, he's kind of reeling from one moment to the next, which is why in that first scene where he meets John and Dave, I mean, um, Matt and David, is that eventually he just has a moment where he just kind of mentally breaks down and has to get out of there because he can't deal. And he went from being fine to having a complete emotional, being a complete, complete emotional mess. And the pivotal moment for Tony in the story, I think he was, yeah, he's still Tony at this point, um, was when he was mental, he was sort of emotionally falling apart by himself. He was at home by himself. And he really had the thought that he wanted to be with his father. He wanted his father. And then instead of pushing that down, he picked up the phone. And that was the pivotal moment. I love that. I love that moment. That he reached out. I was like, yes, there you go. Yeah. And he didn't even ask anything. Patrick just knew something wasn't right and said, can I come to you? And Tony just let it happen. He just said yes. And Patrick came to him. And Tony's never had that before. Ever. He's never been vulnerable and needed somebody and not even had to ask for it. But it was offered and he was able to accept. And it's awesome. It's part of why it's part of why he was able to let go of being Tony, that name. And embrace this life that he didn't. And honestly, it's not too befuddling. If Tony had, had a happy life growing up as Tony, had a happy life with Tony Denova, but he was named after the man who was very um, complicit in Tony's life being he worked away from his family and the fact that he never got to know his mother so um, he shared a name with that dude so that it is I know I actually I have it was an unpopular choice with a few people that I did a hard switch at one point from Tony Denozo to Alex Shepard um, but moment Tony, that Tony did was, that hard yeah. switch yes yeah. He walked into court not knowing what he was going to do, not knowing if he could let go of being Tony. And he walked into court not knowing which way he was going to go. And when the judge asked him, he decided he was going to be Alex Shepard. Now, in the narrative, that's why it's a hard switch from Tony to Alex all at once is because that's when Tony chose. He chose to be Alex. In dialogue, 
whether he's Tony or Alice depends upon who he's talking to. And that was also important because the first time Gibbs calls him Alex is when it's towards the end and it's when Gibbs has accepted that Tony is gone and that he's moving into his life as Alex Shepard and Tony and Gibbs is accepting that. Ducky calls him Alex. I thought that, I thought that was excellent craft actually. So I don't know why anybody would have a problem with it. They don't know yeah, what they're talking about. about. <laughs> well, it's just kind of, well, you didn't have to change his name. Yeah, I kind of did. <laughs> I kind of did. He should have said, actually, I didn't change his name. I just gave him his original name back. Yeah. He didn't, he just had to have his name restored, right? He just had to, but it wasn't actually that he had to have his name changed because legally he is Alexander Shepard. The legal complication becomes in the assets that are in the name of Tony DeMondo. So there would have to be a legal writ to get his assets switched over to his real name. I don't know. It's complicated. I'm not even sure exactly how the law would work in that situation, considering he never was actually legally Tony DeMondo, but it's a weird situation legally. But it would have to be addressed legally. So that's why he had to go to court and make a choice. Because he couldn't keep running around with a badge with a name that wasn't his own. Now, someone did ask a really obscure one. Um, um, Bella in um, Bella, Hospitality. The hospitality of Hobbits. Um, I think with that one, um, when I was plotting that story, I decided that those events, that the um, Duran folk had to have passed near the Shire when they were moving from Dunlin to the Blue Mountains. It had to happen. And it's not like they could get from one place to the other. So some hobbits had to have seen them. And so Belladonna, um, it's canon that she kind of was an adventuring hobbit, right? Um, And I decided to kind of play that up and have it be that she kind of got in trouble on fairly on the regular for trying to adventure when she wasn't supposed to or not, or going further than she was supposed to. And so she was a little bit too far out of the Shire on the day when she heard the story about, and I, it, it kind of implied that she's kind of prodded a little bit by Yavanna to do something. But she genuinely is a good person. She's genuinely a good, uh, a, a kind, kind, sweet gentle person who cares about people even if she is kind of a firecracker too and um, she uh, decided she wanted to extend this, this very explicit thing so her motivation her motivation there was that she just felt really strongly to her the idea of these people with you know women these families and children and a lot of their um men who are not either very young or very old are dead. Um, so their menfolk are very absent. But the idea of these families having lost one home and then engaged in war for a long period of time and losing another home, and they're going to a home that they don't even know what kind of a home it's going to be, to a hobbit, that is just unfathomable. That's just not appropriate. And it was just not something she felt like she could stand by and let happen. And so she persuades her father 
to extend hospitality to. Um, and I was working with the idea that there's something about the Shire that kind of repels people who are not invited to be there because considering how rich that land is, it's a little bit squishy that they weren't invaded on the regular. So that was kind of where that idea came from. Um, but anyway, and then she meets Thorin, and Thorin's her um, heartmate, and he can't stand her. <laughs> Ostensibly <laughs> can't stand her. He won't sit still in a room with her. Um, well, she's just not She's just not going to have that. So she gets the other hobbits together, and um, Dees, and they... Um, they engineer it so that Thorin has to spend the day with her, except it doesn't go very well, and they fight the whole time. And um, so at that point in the story, her motivation is, I mean, they have this external event of Thorin ignoring her, and she's kind of hurt by that. And then she decides that she's going to get to the bottom of this, and he's going to have to spend some time with her because he's her heartmate. He needs to do some explaining. And then it doesn't go well, and then she's got other things on her mind, and she just gets kind of fed up with the whole thing. Um, and um, she really cares about something. the dwarf. Yes. I've not read this story because it messes with my OTP. <laughs> I know. I, 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 it messes with a lot of people's OTP because um, it also, Belladonna getting together with Thorin, um, Bungo gets together with... Um, one of the dwarves, too. Um, actually, in that story, um, Ori is the first Wobbit. Um, and he's Bung- Ori is Bungo's son in that story. So, there's um, a mess with all kinds of shit in that, in that story. So, um, Bilbo Thorne is, it, it, it's, it's kind of OT, but just for me, I don't know, I don't know why I would, like, put half of my OTP with Thorne's mother, with with Bilbo's mother. Um, I have no idea. Sometimes I get crazy ideas and I just go forth. <laughs> she goes forth with her crazy idea. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's a lovely story because you're a, you're an awesome writer, but I just can't make myself do it. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> That's okay. I, under, I understand. Um, but that we only have five minutes of the podcast. How crazy is that? Has it been two hours? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. But yeah, Belladonna well, is very. She's just very. Um, she's fundamentally very kind, but she's also very sassy. Um, but she really comes to love Durin's folk and Thorn's people. She considers them her people, and Thorn keeping her at arm's distance is. Um, um, she finds it very hurtful. So she does try to get to the bottom of it. She does. Um, they wind up. There's a scene where they wind up wrestling over her pack because he thinks that she's too tiny to carry her own pack, and um, she winds up in the dirt. He keeps calling her halfling until he she kicks him. Um, no, she kicks him over calling her your highness because he's she's told him over and over and over again that she's not a princess. He keeps doing it until she finally kicks him. Um, but. The story ends when their parents have agreed that they can have a courtship. So that's where that story ends. They exchange courting deeds at uh, at the end of the Hospitality of Hobbits. And there was a lot more problems so, for that story. What yeah. was Thorin's motivation? 
Um, his, his, she's his one, and he's a king with no kingdom, with no home, no country. He feels like he is or will be king um, because the magic of the Shire um, takes away the effect of the gold madness on Thrain. So his father has settled down and started acting reasonable. Uh, but Thorin still says they're, you know, living on the what he considers the charity of hobbits, and he has nothing to offer her. So it doesn't matter in his mind. And so it, there's a really profound moment between Thrain and Thorin where Thrain said, is this my doing, that I made you think that there were anything more important than, you know, whoever Mahal had crafted for you. Is this my fault? And... Thorin realizes that, you know, he, his perceptions um, might be a little bit skewed. And he apologizes to Belladonna and asks if he can court her. And that's where the story ends. Huh. He's suspiciously reasonable. <laughs> He's suspiciously reasonable for ignoring her the entire story. She gets all of the hobbits involved in setting him up where it doesn't matter what part of the Shire Thorin says he's going to, Belladonna has a reason to be there. So her aunt and her mother are like in the loop on this and these. So that wherever Thorin says that he's going, they can pipe up and go, oh, well, Belladonna needs to go there too. Would you please escort her? <laughs> so, um, I actually feel sorry for him. He's just been taking just, can't even take a walk by himself to have to deal with this hobbit. Well, he avoided her for months. He deserved to be cornered like that. <laughs> we have 90 seconds left. How crazy is that? Apparently eternal motivation makes the time fly. It did. It did. Um, I think, you know, honestly, um, if you treat your characters genuinely and really invest yourself in in figuring out their emotional intelligence and studying their motivations and figuring out what will make them happy, what will give them their best life, um, and shaping their motivations around that, that you'll create very, very interesting people. We're down to 42 seconds. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Thank you.